Our God is the Ancient of Days. You know, if that doesn't delight your heart and encourage you in your soul, check your pulse. It's worse than you thought. As you're turning to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 in your Old Testament, let me just say um, the obvious. We, We do not have to come to the Scripture and exert great effort to make it relevant to our day nor do we need to come to the scripture and somehow solve the mystery of how it applies to the manner in which God's people are to live their lives. Uh, you and I do not make the Bible relevant. We don't make the, uh, the Bible practical to us. It simply is as it is conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit. And I, and I mention that to uh, remind you that as, as we've turned to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, uh, we, we've been reminded that this world still today is populated by just two kinds of people. There, there are those who live with affection for the Word of God and allegiance to the God of the Word, and there are those who do not. Those whose affections and allegiances lie elsewhere. And remember, there are no tweeners. There, there are no uh, sort of Christians. There are no mostly Christians. There are, there are not Christians by proxy. My uncle was a missionary, therefore, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you cannot be sort of Christian any more than you can be sort of pregnant or sort of dead. And, and I, that's, I don't mean that as a funny statement. But if you say such things in this day and age, people look at you as if that is hyperbole. You know, maybe that's just sort of a rhetorical device to get people's attention, that sort of thing. But this is God's own explanation in his word uh, why there is a lack of peace among people and among nations. Have you noticed that? A lack of peace among people and among nations. And it is God's own explanation in his word why there is a lack of peace within people and within nations. It's all to do with these conflicting, opposing allegiances. God's people live in glad allegiance to the Lord's anointed king, Jesus Christ. Amen? And God's enemies live in rebellion against the king, the Lord's anointed. So which one are you? That's not my, that's not my question. That is the question that Psalms 1 and 2 uh, ask you, that these two psalms which introduce us to the entire Psalter and, and introduce to us um, or reinforce for us the, the main themes of our Bible. They get all up in your business and, and say, hey, Where does your affection lie in the primary sense? To whom or to what do you live in allegiance? Now, for God's people gathered today, um, these psalms beg another question. And pay attention now because I'm getting to the point. There's always a wind-up and then he gets to the point, right? Um, How ought we think and live in light of the nature of the world we're experiencing right now. 
That's the issue for us. And this morning we're turning to Psalm 2, and we're just going to take an overview of these these 12 verses. Uh, We're going to look at the different stanzas of this song in in Israel's hymn book. Uh, The first uh, uh, three verses speak of uh, this world's rebellion. We live in a world that is rebelling against God and King Jesus. Uh, and the next couple of verses give us heaven's perspective on this. This is, this is something that's vital to us because it's meant to be our own perspective on it. And some of us have the wrong perspective. I'm just saying. Verses 6 through 9, God's decree. God has said something about all of this. What is it? And then finally, the king's invitation. Let's just look first of all at verses 1 through 3, the world's rebellion. I want you to just, just, just remember that this song, uh, first sung 3,000 years ago, pre- precisely describes the world today in its present state. Just, just, just hear this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And this question that is posed in verse one of Psalm two follows seamlessly the last verse of Psalm one. Just look at that in your Bible. Uh, The last few words of of Psalm 1, verse 6, the way of the ungodly shall perish, and then, so why do the nations rage? What what, what is the point of it? What what, what can possibly be gained by this rebellion that we see raging in the world around us? And you look at the world today and you see that the nations have really diverse interests and, and we're often at each other's throats, aren't we? We, we have uh, dem- democracies and communist regimes and we have Marxist states and we have authoritarian states and uh, uh, democratic governments, all of that sort of thing. And we don't always get along. We're always fighting about this and that. But, but the scripture says to us that the nations are uniformly opposed to the Lord and his Christ. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. Because, because I've always thought that, you know, in the, in the east, in that part of the world where the heathen live, um, certainly there's opposition to the Lord and his Christ. But here in the west, which has always been Christian, Oh my, oh my. I seriously doubt you need evidence that even in the West, even in America, where our own currency pledges allegiance to God, we as a people are at war against God. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Last week I alluded to a new law in Canada and it went into effect just this month, that declares God's design for sexual orientation and gender identity to be a myth. So just let that settle in. Not the idea of it, but the fact that it's been um, codified. It's been legislated on a national level. And to preach or to counsel God's design 
for sexual orientation and gender with the goal of helping people who are caught up in this trap of, of the, the, the sin of, of disordered desires. How many of you know that's what sin is? A disordered desire. To, to counsel, help, is now a crime in Canada. And the Canadian law states this. It, it, it's, it's illegal now because this counsel quote, causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. And you say, well, what, what kind of myths? What are they talking about? Well, including the myth that sex and sexual orientation assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations. Now just think about what that, that says. It is now illegal in Canada, and we'll see how it's enforced or whether it is enforced, but it's now illegal in Canada to, to counsel someone biblically that it is wrong to decide that you were not born a male or you were not born a female. And, and if that's shocking to you, it should be. It is completely contrary to the design of God. And there is very similar legislation being considered in Britain. And you say, well, that's the British and the Canadians. I mean, that whole Commonwealth thing seems kind of bent anyway, doesn't it? And and they put vinegar on their potato chips. Did you know that? That's not normal. Listen, what, what, what about in America? What about here in America? There is a proposed city ordinance in Indiana Uh, that declares this. Contemporary science recognizes that being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender is part of the natural spectrum of human identity. This is proposed legislation in an American city. And this particular place, West Lafayette, is not the only city in America where these sorts of things are happening. And I mention this uh, not to you know, try to be sensational, and this is not a rant. Please don't hear it that way. But to give us some examples in real time of the nations raging and the nations plotting vain things against the Lord and his Christ. And if you wonder why, you know, sometimes people say, well, you Christians are always talking about the uh, homosexuality and gender orientation. It's like, is that your pet topic or something? It isn't that it's a pet topic. It's just that this is foundational to human society in any culture. It's, It's not a Western thing. It's a worldwide thing. The nations of the world raging against God and his design for gender and family, the, the, the very nucleus, if you will, of a community. And unless you think I'm exaggerating, because some of you are looking at me like, well, you're being kind of sensational, maybe you didn't sleep well. Um, <laughs> if you think I'm exaggerating, think about it this way. YouTube last week banned sermons about the Canadian law that were preached just last Sunday, okay? And you say, well, why would they do something like that? For the same reason that Facebook now bans and edits some of the the biblical responses with respect to COVID. 
And, and I know this makes some of us feel really uncomfortable to talk about real life as it's happening. But the Bible is saying to us that what we're seeing today is what has always been happening on planet Earth since the fall. The nations rage against the Lord. Do you think it's possible that, that right here in, in good old Idaho, that one day our gatherings, our preaching, our teaching, our biblical counseling might one day be criminalized? It's not unthinkable that that should happen. And, and, and the thing of it is, friends, is we are not meant to be paranoid. We are not meant to be you know, alarmist in a, in a sensational way. But, but I do want to encourage you that if you see these things happening and you take them seriously, that doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist. It doesn't make you a nutcase. It makes you someone who's simply looking at the world biblically. So the question is not, is it happening? The question is, what is the child of God to think about this? What are the people of God to do about this? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Listen, people, sinful people, oppose God's word because God's word opposes sin. There's no getting around that. Nations reject God's authority because God claims authority over all nations. God's good ways, God's benevolent ways, are now seen as unwanted bonds and cords because God's ways, given to humanity in his law, curb man's carnal desires and his carnal allegiances. And, and, and this is not a new thing. This is humanity's age-old problem, isn't it? It's not all that unlike uh, the, the, the younger sibling saying to the older, look, you're, you're not the boss of me. I, I know you're trying to help me cross the street so I don't get hit by a car, but you, you're not the boss of me. What does God's word say about this? Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. God says through the prophet, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Who's they? Well, God's people Israel, the people who named God, but didn't actually love him nor live in allegiance to him. But the they of Jeremiah's day certainly applies to the nations in our day, the people plotting vain things in our day. Man turns to God incredibly and says, you're not the boss of me. I don't want to belabor this description of the world's rebellion because I, I, I trust that it's, it's, it's patently obvious to us, but I want us to notice 
that Psalms two, Psalm 2 uh, is not just broadly descriptive of, of what we see. It's also really specifically prophetic. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord is Yahweh. Right? We saw that in, in Psalm 1, also in Psalm 23. Uh, the one true God. There are not many gods, there is one God. The one creator and sustainer of all things, who is eternal, who has, has no beginning and no end, the ancient of days. But, but who is the Lord's anointed? Well, well the, the Davidic covenant, which, which you can read of in 2 Samuel 7. We'll not turn there right now, but maybe do that in your free time today. Um, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant made plain that Israel's king was the Lord's anointed in, in, a, in a human sense, an earthly sense, in, in the, the theocracy that was ancient Israel. Uh, the king was God's anointed. God himself was uh, his people's absolute ruler, as he is of all people, uh, and yet he had delegated the right and responsibility to rule uh, to his king, you know, David and, and David's descendants. So, so Psalm 2, uh, which some of your study Bibles will say, hey, this is, this is one of the royal psalms. What, what's that all about? Well, it's to do with kingship. It's to do with kingdom. And, and, and this psalm uh, very likely was sung not only in worship, but in times of Israel inaugurating a king. But here's the thing. Clearly, Psalm 2 does not merely refer to any old human king, does it? No Davidic king in an earthly sense ever ushered in the kingdom of God globally. In fact, most of Israel's kings had a difficult time ruling themselves, let alone Israel, let alone the nations. And so David is singing prophetically here of his promised descendant, his son, if you will, a ruler whose kingdom would be both global and eternal. In fact, the Hebrew word that is translated anointed in, in the New King James there is Messiah. Or, or in Greek, it's Christ. And you, you think, well, my goodness, this, this is to do with Jesus. Here is Jesus right in my Old Testament, in Psalm 2. It's almost as if the whole book is about Jesus, isn't it? You get the idea. A thousand years before Jesus is born, before God the Eternal Son is born into time, born into humanity, this song proclaims his kingship, proclaims his rule, and, and, and think about this. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. When, when God the Son was born, both the Jewish and Gentile nations plotted against him, didn't they? Herod the Great, Herod the not so great, really. Herod the Great killed all the little boys around Bethlehem. What, what, what was that about? Well, just, just hoping to... Uh, to kill off this king who had been born, Jesus. 
the Jewish religious leaders plotted all throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus to do what? To discredit him and murder him. Pilate and another Herod. Remember, world history at that time was lousy with Herods. They had spread like a bad rash. Herod Antipas uh, was one who, with Pilate, they, you know, they batted Jesus back and forth in these sham trials, uh, scheming to blot out the bright light of the only righteous man who has ever walked planet Earth. The nations rage against the Lord and his anointed. And you, and you go into your, your New Testament and you see that the apostles apply all of that scheming against Jesus, the Lord's anointed. All of that scheming that led up to the crucifixion, uh, to, to Calvary itself, to uh, Christ's resurrection and ascension, um, the apostles say that is all a fulfillment of Psalm 2. But listen to Acts 4. Did any of you read in Acts 4 this past week? Nobody? Nobody does this stuff. A couple of you. Acts 4, verse 24, the apostles uh, raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The nations raging against the Lord and his Christ. Accomplishing what? Accomplishing only what God had purposed would be done. Don't miss that. Though the nations rage, God's people are not to live as if his hand is no longer in control. We were not to live as if his, his purposes are somehow now in jeopardy. God is scrambling to figure out what to do in response to man's rebellion. And let me just say this as tenderly as I can think. Too many of us are not living this way. We're living as if everything's out of control. And so we're living in fear. And we're forgetting that we belong to the ancient of days whose purposes are not thwarted whose plans of redemption for this world are not somehow in jeopardy. So here is David writing one of his greatest hits a thousand years before Jesus' birth, foretelling of the world's rebellion against Christ and the outcome of that rebellion, all part of God's design, all part of God's promise of a kingdom and a king. How does God respond to this rebellion? Well, that, that's our, our second stanza, isn't it? We're making tremendous progress. We've seen the world's rebellion. Let's, let's see heaven's 
perspective. And, and, and be attentive to this, please, because God wants us to adopt heaven's perspective here. Those of us who belong to the king. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And this is really startling language to us because the, the rejection of the Lord's Christ, the rejection of Jesus is not trivial and it's not funny. It's horrifying to all who love Jesus, isn't it? And so when the Bible says, when God says, look, Yahweh laughs, it's not in the malicious sense, you know, the junior high playground sense of laughing at an opponent. It's to convey the absolute futility of rebellion against God. Why do the nations rage? In light of what God has said. In light of who God is, what, what's the point of it? So here is God describing himself in, in human terms to drive home for us heaven's clear response to this rebellion. What, what is heaven's perspective then on this rebellion? Well, who is God? Isaiah says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's God's perspective on human rebellion. God's sovereign rule over all people, loyalists and rebels alike, is absolute. And his rule is never in danger of changing. Do you believe this? God's sovereign rule is neither diminished nor threatened by human rebellion. Don't miss that. Years ago, when Pam and the kids and I lived up in the Silverwood area, as we used to call it, um, we had a little hobby farm up there, and we and our neighbor, Larry, had joint ownership of an ant hill because the ants had built this, this wonderful little kingdom um, so that our fence just, just cut it right in half. And it, and it was an interesting thing to see because we would let it go in the spring and just see what the ants could do. They weren't really harming anything just yet. But pretty soon they, they, they built this thing up and it was, I don't know, maybe half the height of this podium and uh, pretty soon they were cutting roads and highways across the pasture. Um, one of them, I'm not exact, probably 30 yards all the way over to a tree. Then they're taking over the tree. And, and th they were really something. I mean, it was really something to behold. But, but it wasn't really um, an even match, you know. Not, not in light of a propane torch <laughs> or, 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 you know, bug aside or whatever it is you spray on ants. Man's rebellion from heaven's perspective is like a group of ants rebelling against the hobby farmer. So it's, it's laughing not in the malicious sense, but in the sense of the absolute futility of it. The idea itself is laughable. And I, and I beg you to hear this if you are yet living in rebellion against God. 
What, what does it mean to live in rebellion against God? It means not to live in allegiance to the king. And God does not merely laugh, he speaks, says verse 5. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Notice that all who refuse allegiance to the Lord's anointed are the objects of his wrath. All. That's why I keep asking you in this series, where do your allegiances lie? And you say, well, I believe Jesus existed and I, and I, I believe that, um, that, that, that the Romans nailed him to a cross and, and I believe that there were some Jews in the first century AD who, who had some culpability and all of that. And, and, and you need to know that demons believe that. But they have no allegiance to Christ. Have you allegiance to Christ? You have a sense of what that is. So we've seen the world's rebellion and heaven's perspective. Notice God's decree. Verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Jesus, right? And what was it that Jesus preached when he began his earthly ministry. The time is fulfilled, says Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The the, the kingdom is here because the king is here. What kingdom? You, You mean the kingdom promised to David? Well, yeah. But listen, even more so the kingdom promised to all of humanity, beginning in Genesis and revealed progressively throughout the pages of your Bible. Scripture is all about a kingdom and a king. And humanity is separated on the basis of belonging or not belonging to this kingdom. And loving or not loving this king. You see, if you're to have Jesus as savior, you must have him as king. And and what has this king done for fallen humanity? Did did he come to this earth and just say, hey, this is the way it's going to be? Well, he did more than that, didn't he? The ultimate blessed man. Remember that from Psalm 1? Please tell me you remember that. I'm not going to move on if you don't remember it. We'll go back. The ultimate blessed man. In fact, the only righteous man who has ever lived. God in humanity came to this rebellious world and did what? Well, Philippians 2 says this. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant that he might obey 
the father. How obedient was he? All the way to going to the cross where he gave his life to atone for the sins of his people, to exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness, our rebellion. And death could not contain him. He rose. Jesus is alive. And the king reigns today to the glory of the Father. And he shall reign forevermore. Do you believe this? That was the gospel plea, by the way, even to those who crucified Jesus. Listen to Peter's proclamation in Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The the apostle Paul uh, proclaimed this gospel of the kingdom to be good news, good news. For humanity. The, the, the promise of Psalm 2 is God's merciful answer to man's sin problem, to, to the world's rebellion. Listen to, to Acts 13. We declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. My goodness, that, that, that Psalm 2's fulfillment then, isn't it? This reign of Jesus, Christ's ascension to, to heaven is the inauguration, if you will, of the reign of King Jesus. Why am I harping on this? Because this is heaven's perspective, and it ought to be the perspective of, of heaven's citizens. Are you a citizen of heaven? Then here's the deal. The church today is not waiting for Jesus to become king. Don't think that. He is now the king of kings and lord of lords. And he reigns now. You say, well, how, how, how is that the case? Well, Jesus reigns even now in the hearts of his people, does he not? His church, the, the Israel of God. And Jesus rules every day, every moment of every day, as he exerts his providence in the world. Do you realize that stuff doesn't happen outside the sovereign reign of Christ? Do you realize that? And friends, the gospel plea still today is a call to submission, glad surrender, glad allegiance to this absolute sovereign, this king who is Jesus. And, and, and how do you explain all of the, uh, the, the rebellion, the examples of which I gave earlier? Well, it's simply that the world is still saying today what was said in Jesus' day. We will not have this man to reign over us. So you say what you want about God. Go ahead and be a God people, but don't talk to me about this Jesus. 
I want you to notice that God's decree is actually spoken by the Messiah himself. Look at verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, says the anointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, one day, all rebellion against the kingdom of God and King Jesus will be brought to an end with finality. And so the gospel is urgent, urgent news, just as it is good news. God the Father has promised the Son the nations as his inheritance. And, and to, to belong to Jesus, to be um, a, a citizen of his kingdom, is to know that you will participate in the rule of the king. So, so, so when we think, for example, of, of the second coming, how, how is this whole thing going to end? Well, it's not so much to do with you being whisked away just in time to not have to suffer anything difficult. It's to do with the reign of Christ over the nations. Are you going to be a part of that or not? Because it's going to happen. Listen to how John the Apostle describes this reign of the king. This is um, from Revelation. He says, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him, the king, the anointed one, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now just think about this. Sometimes we read a verse like that and we think, oh boy, that's interesting. This is all about how God's going to come and smoke everybody who's not like us. Do you realize that that is not what this is saying at all? How does Christ bring the nations under his rule? Christ brings the nations under his rule by the gospel. What do I mean by that? The, the gospel itself is a two-edged sword, isn't it? That's why some of us are afraid to share the gospel. It offends. It cuts. It separates. The weapons of our warfare are not earthly. They're not temporal, they're spiritual. We're not to take up arms in the way that, that Peter did on Jesus' behalf. The gospel itself is that double-edged sword that divides the people of this world. And it's through the proclamation of Christ that the kingdom grows. It is not to do with making sure you have a bunker and enough bullets and all of that sort of nonsense. It's to do with conveying the gospel to a lost world. So, so rather than rant on Facebook or act like wearing a mask is some sort of intense persecution, proclaim Christ. 
you'll hear soon about a group of folks from HBC who will be meeting just down the street at McIntyre Park this summer uh, to proclaim Christ to families. Be a part of that. A group of people from this church, by God's grace, will be going to Coram, Montana. That's like a third world country, right? <laughs> Coram, Montana, to, to help with Vacation Bible School. And, and what is that? It's proclaiming Christ. It's proclaiming the kingdom. Seth Hoisington, where did he go? Did he leave? Now he's in the back. This is to do with proclaiming the kingdom right here where we live. Some of you need to proclaim Christ this year simply by being baptized. Proclaim your allegiance to the Messiah. So there is the world's rebellion and there is heaven's perspective. There is God's decree and I'll I'll end quickly. The king's invitation. Look at verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. We'll need to spend some more time on this, Lord willing, next week because the, the, the conclusion of all of this business is very important to us. Very important to us. But for now, just, just think about what's plain. The only shelter from the wrath of God's anointed king is the shelter that is found in the king himself. Don't miss that. So that when the scriptures speak of a day coming when the, when the leaders of the nations of this world will be crying out to the mountains to destroy them, there will be no escape. But there is an escape now, isn't there? And the escape is found in running not away from the king, but running to him. Reconciliation with God is found only in surrender to the king. Oh, and what a king he is. What a beautiful king is Jesus, who has come into this world with love in his heart, for people like you and people like me, unable to be that righteous, that that truly blessed man that we read about in Psalm 1. And yet he lived that life for us, didn't he? And then he went to that cross and didn't just die a physical death. Horrific as that is, he absorbed the wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve. And then he said from that cross, you know what? It's finished. That's it. I did it for them. I have reconciled my people to God. So you run to him in faith and take shelter in the king. And the the caution of Psalm 2, I suppose you could say, is a bit of a caution against one of the false gospels so common in our day. The idea that you can be a saved person and live like someone who doesn't even know Jesus. That, that's, not a, that's not the gospel. Uh, to truly be saved by Christ is to be ruled by Christ. 
Or, or you might say, you know, I, I, I was saved and then one day I decided Jesus was Lord of my life. That, that's, that's heretical. Why? Because nobody makes Jesus Lord. He just is. And so we may marvel at the rebellion. But you know what we should marvel at even more? The long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of God. I wouldn't give those ants three months, two and a half tops, and then they just started bugging me, man. No pun intended, I just thought of that. But listen, how merciful is our God? How long-suffering is our king? What is David singing then? Repent of your treason, he says to the nations, or his justice will crush you. Oh, but if you do repent, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Is that your comfort today? Is, is that your, your confidence today? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're our king. And we thank you for making things so plain for us. But, Lord, we don't see as clearly still as we'd like to. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would work among us that we might have heaven's perspective on this rebellious world that we live in. Lord, that we might be kingdom-minded citizens. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, as you've lifted up your son, that you would draw your people to yourself. We ask you this, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen.